Hello and welcome to episode four now of the Very Funny Podcast. I'm your host, Al Pacino. Uh, We got a great show, hopefully, for you guys today. I am, as you can tell, we're in a different setting today. I'm uh, surrounded by um, very expensive pillows. These are made from genuine polyester. So, you know, you don't, you don't, what are these made from? I'm in a hotel right now in Miami and um, I had a show here in Miami as you all know, and we just finished it up, and I'm leaving on a flight in a few hours to head to Europe for the European leg of the Love Isn't the Answer Tour to London. So I'm going to record the podcast for you guys and put it out before I jump on a jet plane. Don't know when I'll be back again. Actually, I know exactly when I'll be back again, Um, but I want to make sure I get this episode out to you guys. Thank you, first of all, for everybody who's been watching the Very Funny Podcast. Very happy with all the comments that people are sending back, all the feedback. should have my phone next to me. It's over there. I'll go grab it in a second Um, or towards the end to answer some of your questions. But um, yeah, so let's just jump right into it, as Philip DeFranco would say. Uh, Today, I thought, you know, I I do a lot of podcasts. A lot of people ask me uh, whenever I get on a podcast or whenever I do an interview, they always ask me a lot of questions about the Middle East because... That's where I'm from. That's um, uh, where I started doing stand-up comedy. That's where I started stand-up comedy as an industry. And a lot of people like to ask me about that whole thing. I I don't think I've ever put the record kind of straight or really told my story myself, just kind of one-on-one. And um, I think it would be a good opportunity on this podcast to kind of tell you guys how stand-up comedy became a thing in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, I'll really dive back into, uh, there's a lot of stories, so I don't think I'm going to cover the whole thing in one podcast. I think <clears throat> I'll start out, excuse me, it's just the show just finished a while ago, so my voice might be a bit dry. Um, by the way, Miami was incredible, so thank you to everybody who showed up. Just unbelievable. The Miami Improv, one of the best comedy clubs in the country. Unreal. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to, um, no way I could tell the entire story, how it started and bring it up to today. But I think over the next few episodes, that might be a pretty cool thing to do. Let me know in the comments below if you're like, Nimmer, fuck off with all your stories. And uh, in which case, then I will. But uh, uh, let me know. I hope you enjoy this. So stand-up comedy, when I first started doing stand-up, it was in 1999. End of 99, beginning of 2000. And I was 17, in theory, at the time, if my calculations are correct. See, I grew up in America, as a lot of you know. When I was 10 years old, my parents were like, we need to go back to Beirut, where it's safe, as I like to joke (laughs) in my shows. But uh, ethnic parents have that kind of habit where if something is too good or too secure, uh, somebody asked me today backstage before the show, why did you guys go back to Beirut? And I joke that it was, you know, because it's safe or whatever. Like I was, there's a lot of jokes to be made there. But my parents, it was a mixture of this is, you know, they were worried about American or their kids coming out too American as if that would mean that they couldn't also carry Middle Eastern values. I think a lot of parents who come from ethnic backgrounds or kids out there that uh, people watching that have parents, uh, we're all kids of somebody uh, who have parents 
will will say to themselves or have recognized that if if they're if they're not from the country you know the country they're from is they always think it's the best country and when they immigrate a lot of times they they they're always afraid that they maybe made a mistake my parents i was telling somebody backstage i think they thought america was too comfortable like uh like we can't raise them here here they have everything you know in america everything is given to them that's no way to live that's that's not realistic <laughs> What happens if everything is taken away? How will they be able to cope? I think a lot of uh, Arab parents have that kind of weird complex where they're like, it's, it's too good. This is they, they want internet. It works. I will take them back to the Middle East where uh, they have to spend four days to get internet connected so that it can disconnect by itself. And they can feel rage and anger and fury because anger and fury make strong men. And it's kind of... It's a mentality where if something is going too well, Arabs are because they've been raised in war. They're like, no, we got to prepare them for the for the worst. I think my parents were definitely on the kind of thing that like, look, this America's too good. Uh, we should take them back to Lebanon, teach them how the real world works. You know, where uh, where everything needs to be taken care of. <laughs> Nothing's kind of given to you. Nobody's looking out for you, and it's tough. When we left America, I. I caught the stand-up comedy bug when I was in America. I was maybe five, four years old. I really don't know the exact age. I was very young. We had come to Lebanon, uh, to America, to San Diego. We left Lebanon. I was like one years old. So for me, really, America was everything and everything that I knew. I was American as far as I was concerned. Um, and my parents used to try to teach me Arabic. It was absurd. These letters, most bizarre letters ever. The alphabet made no sense. You speak Arabic, that's one thing. Then you got to write Arabic, that's a different thing. I'm like, this is the dumbest shit. Why would you, it's so redundant. Just talk how you write or write how you talk. Nobody listened to me. I wasn't qualified, apparently. Uh, and they would teach me, uh, try to teach me Arabic. And uh, I just, I, I was like, what's the point of this, you know? I just felt no connection whatsoever. I wasn't there. When we came here, all I do remember is there were no happy memories, right? Because whenever you leave your home because of war, your family leaves, they're not leaving because they want to. They're leaving because they had to. And uh, we get to America. I don't have happy memories. Like, I don't have, um, up until a certain point, I don't have, like, a memory of my dad and mom just, like, throwing me about. And then <laughs> we're giggling, rolling on the bed. And, you know, like in movies where before, like, a kid dies in a movie, they show you how the parents and the kid used to adore each other. And it's like, come on. Come on. And they throw a baseball and the kid catches it and he carries him. And then the kid dies of cancer. That's usually like they have those sequences. There's always they try to do character development where the uh, where they show you how the kid and the parents bonded and what their relationship was like. I never had that sequence in my story. It was just like I just don't remember any of that. I just remember we were in America and it was pretty tense and miserable um, until I was like four or five. This is my earliest happy memory. I hear my parents laughing hysterically um, from their bedroom. So I make my way over to their bedroom and they're watching stand-up comedy. My dad had never seen stand-up before. My mom had grown up uh, for some years in London. So she knew what stand-up was. And uh, my dad just, he was losing it. He was laughing and tears were coming down his face. My mom as well. And I never seen that before. And I jumped into bed with them and uh, we started having sex. No, I'm kidding. I jumped into bed with them. <laughs> and we, <laughs> oh, goodness. And uh, we, I, we were cracking up. I was laughing 
so hard. Didn't understand a thing that they were laughing at. No clue. Just I wanted to be part of that spirit. And uh, that was it, man. Ever since then, I would tell people, when I grow up, I'm going to be either a Ninja Turtle or a stand-up comic, right? I haven't given up on the Ninja Turtle pit. I just want to make that very clear. It's, um, it's a work in progress. Uh, stem cell research is a thing. Uh, the Vatican is opposed to it, and I think that's kind of uh, held up the progress of where we could be with that. But that's a different topic for a different day. For now, what I will say is, I said I wanted to be a stand-up comic. My parents would start recording comedy uh, on VHS, cassette tapes, HBO. Uh, we had HBO and everything that was stand-up comedy, they would film it, they would record it, and we'd watch it together as a family. It became a thing. And it was like, it brought joy into the house. And uh, I always wanted to be a part of that. Like, I, I, I remember, it was just for me, it was like, I want to be able to do something that can, cro- can f- flip a mode. So we were all in this one kind of mood and then this thing comes on TV and it's it slapped to the face, changes. I don't think anything has that power, right? Besides like medication, obviously, um, antidepressants or whatever. But I mean, in the, uh, in the non-psychiatric world, in the non-like taking substance world, comedy is truly, when it comes to vernacular, there's nothing like it. And we end up leaving Lebanon, 10 years old, 9, 10, 11, something like that. Get to Lebanon, and I start doing school there. And I was always the funny kid. Like, I was always getting kicked out of class. I'd always make jokes. And to the credit of my class, they were the best comedy breeding ground in the world. All of my friends were hysterical. Uh, Rabia, George, Ziad, uh, George Hadib, another George. Um, and we had Nadim. And we had, you know, people who came and went, uh, trying to remember all the names, Mark, Basila, and then you had uh, Tony Musa, and you had just all these kids, man. Even the girls were funny. Um, Carla, Natasha, there was just all these different, Karen, if they're watching this, they know they're who they are. But it, it was... We just kept telling jokes all the time. They were hysterical. I remember we had our, our history teacher, Jamil Farah, shout out to him. He uh, he was, he was came from America to Lebanon, and uh, he used to teach at juvenile delinquent centers. And when he came to our class, he was like, you know, he'd get pissed off. He'd start kicking furniture around. And he was like, you know, I had a gun pulled on me in America. I taught at a juvie center. There were murderers. There were criminals. There were thieves. And I've never taught, taught more bigger animals than you. And he would just lose it. And um, we were so bad. We used to push all his buttons. I remember we, we used to keep asking him what the effect of the euro was. <laughs> Whenever we'd be talking about the Byzantine Empire or ancient Greece. And we'd, uh, we'd raise our hand. We'd be like, sir, how did the euro affect it? And for some reason, he would <laughs> he would always be like, the euro didn't... The euro wasn't a thing until 19... You know, we just like, like it's the euro, stay with me. The euro wasn't around back then. We'd be like, oh, no. And uh, we just keep asking him the same questions. And then uh, Ziad was the first one to do... <laughs> he shouted at Ziad once. Like, he's like, Ziad, I want you to stop. And Ziad was like, is it because I'm black? And obviously we're not black. 
<laughs> that there was like, is it because I'm Jewish? Like we'd always have these bizarre things drive him crazy. Um, we'd be reading from the notes, not the notes, sorry, the book. You'd read out loud. And something we would do, I'd be reading, and then somebody else would pick off exactly where I was, but we we just, the same pace and rhythm. And everybody in the class was trying to impersonate the other and keep it going. We'd flip pages and skip like three pages and just keep reading, and he just, he'd start getting lost. And um, it was stuff like that, man. It was, makes me want to go back to school. I despise school so much. When I, when I graduated from school, I graduated with a 60.5. So so here's this story. I um, And this all plays into stand-up, by the way. Um, I despise school with incredible passion. There are few, th- very few things that I hate in this world, like the proper meaning of the word hate. Um, if you've seen As Good As It Gets with Jack Nicholson, he tells Helen Hunt that he hates... Uh, something I can't remember. He's like, I'm using the word hate to associate with something. And he goes, but when I saw you, oh, pills, I hate pills, he says. I can't really do a good impression, but he's like, I hate pills. And uh, and my doctor says I need to take these pills to get better. I'm using the word hate here with pills. And he says, um, but when you came over, you made me want to take the pills. And then he goes, here's your compliment. You make me want to be a better man. And... Um, So I hated school. It wasn't for me. Uh, I always felt like I was having my time wasted. I felt like I could be more productive. And now as an adult, I feel that the most valuable experience you can pull from school is if you hate it. If you hate school and you hate being there, then it's a true teaching grounds for reality, for being in situations you despise and having to do it because you have to do it. If you love school, I think it's a disaster. So I hated school. So much. The only joy I had was with our friends when we would make jokes and I would be in the playground making fun of teachers, impersonating them, doing it was kind of like stand up. I'd stand and then a crowd of kids would gather around me. We'd start telling jokes and somebody would grab somebody's hat and we'd run after them. And you know how it was. Um, But apart from that, school was just the worst. And uh, when I graduated, so I applied to the American University of Beirut in grade 11. We would go up to grade 12, grade 11. I did my SATs and I applied to the American University Beirut. It was me and Rabia and Ziad, a couple other students. We taught ourselves the SATs. Our school wouldn't help us. And in fact, they didn't want us to do the SATs. They didn't want us to apply to AUB because they were getting paid by LAU, some kind of commission deal. Like for every student they send there, they get a percentage. It was so messed up. And LAU is like a different university. Um, and they would actively discourage us to take the SATs, to apply. They wanted us to take the English entrance exam, the triple E and the TOEFL, test of English as a foreign language, um, to go to a- to LAU. That's all you need, and then you can do the SATs later. And we're like, no, no, we want to go to AUB. So we had to do the tests ourselves. We had to find out where the testing center was. We had to do So we did all of that. I applied. I did my SATs, and I kicked ass. I got 1,250, I think, 1,250, 1,350 aced the English, completely crushed the English, and um, applied for early admission to AUB, the American University of Beirut, which is the most prestigious university in the Middle East. It's like Harvard in the Middle East. It's It just turned 150 years old or 151. It's ancient. It's incredible. It's something else. And what's amazing about the AUB isn't the fact that it's good education. I don't think you go to college because you're there for them to teach you something that you can't get anywhere. Like there's a secret mix, an elixir of knowledge that this university has. Nobody else. You can learn everything you learn in a university on your own. You can learn it from books. You can learn 
online from YouTube videos. You could learn more. But the reason you go to university is for the exposure you have to the students you're with. People go to Harvard. It's not that Harvard is going to teach you something that you couldn't learn on your own. It's that your student classmates are the future Mark Zuckerberg, the son of the president of whatever, the daughter of the CEO of this, the the contacts you get, the network you become a part of. That's really what you're paying for. And the American University of Beirut, it wasn't for those reasons, although you're there with the sons of presidents and ministers and the daughters of, of world leaders and all that. I, the biggest allure for me was the mix of uh, religious backgrounds, different races, um, people from all over the world, British, African, American students, transfer students, Muslim, Christian, Jewish students, minorities, majorities, and the way, you know, the, the elections were had, the, the drama on campus, all of the exposure to that was very unique. And it's in Beirut, and there's, you know, the, the buildings and everything around you are ancient, and you're surrounded by incredible architecture. So we applied for early admission. Early admission means they tell you you've been accepted to school in November of your last year. The last year ends in June. And I applied. And my hunch was, I was always a very smart kid. I was like, logically speaking, if I get a set, my grades in school were not that good. I, I was an average kid. I, was, I would get 70s. Once I got an 80 and it was like the greatest thing that ever happened. My sister used to get incredible grades and it became the norm. And when she'd get a bad grade, it was bad. Like, what's wrong with you? You're falling off. But I always had bad grades. And when I get a great grade, it was a celebration. So <laughs> who was smarter? Um, and it wasn't that I was a stupid kid. It was just that I really didn't, um, I really felt they were testing my memory and not my knowledge. So I just wouldn't submit to it. It was, it was for real. And um, I figured the SAT is a standardized exam. That's what's going to carry the weight in a university application. So who cares about the grades? I'm going to ace the SAT. That's what I did. And I got accepted. Nobody thought I would get accepted. My, my dad was like, there's no way in hell. My mom was like, you know, go. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> although I do believe my mom even thought it believed in me. She was an AUB graduate. And um, the teachers, no way. So I'm, I'm on the playground recess first recess november my final year of school the principal's wife in her disbelief that i would get accepted starts calling my name across the playground and i see her i thought something was wrong i run to her she's running to me at the same time i was like my parents died something went down she's like nimit your mom just called i'm translating she said this in arabic your mom just called and you've been accepted to AUB because after the words you've been accepted to AUB, my school year ended immediately. I was as soon as accepted to AUB, I just blocked everything out. I was free, free at last. I was free. I was free. The happiness and the joy. I've never felt like that. And I knew. And I, I was always a kid who was like, okay, what do you need to do to win? That's the thing. That's what we'll do. What do I need to do to graduate from this hellhole to get to my university? I need to get a 60.5 out of 100. You have to, 60 won't cut. It has to be a 60. Sorry, you have to get a 60 to graduate. 59, you have to repeat your class. You lose your ability to go to the American University of Beirut. I graduated that year with a 60.5. This is 100% truth. 
no exaggeration. I graduated on the dot. I did exactly the amount of work that was necessary just to graduate with that grade. All the time, making jokes, giving that my attention, uh, driving Jamil Farah crazy and all the other teachers, I graduated with a 60.5. And my principal called me into my, to his room, to his office, and he said, I have your report card. I said, yes. He said, you, you passed on the, on the edge. I said, what do you mean? He said, you got a 60.5. I was like, oh. And he hands me the report card and he says, if I was working at AUB, I wouldn't accept you. I would, he said, if they would listen to me, I would tell them not to accept you. And I remember I looked at him straight in the eyes and I said, if AUB listened to a man like you, I wouldn't have applied. The joy it brings me that I said that is just immeasurable by words. That motherfucker. <laughs> and then I gave the this, this speech, <clears throat> the, the graduating class speech. And um, I graduated 11th in my class out of 12 students. And uh, every, um, and the way that the speech were, the, the kid who's first in class gives the speech at the graduation ceremony. But the kid who was first said, I don't want it. I want Nimmer to do it. And the principal was like, no, it goes to the person who was second. So all of my classmates up until 11, we were a small class by that time because the school I was in, Munsev, used to have 40 students per class, but they used to put us in buses that they had the, the windows epoxy glued so we couldn't breathe and the bus would fit 19 students. We'd be about 57 students. So we would lay on top of each other and students would projectile vomit on each other until Tony Musa, a kid in my class, punched out a window because he was from Bipshari and they're really powerful people and he just punched a window and knocked it out of its place so that we could get some breath. So the bus driver stopped the bus to fight Tony Musa and Tony Musa kicked his ass and we were only 11 years old and that's the kind of badassery that happens when you live and grow up in the Middle East and then we started a revolution where we started getting our own bus and then the school made it illegal that you could get your own bus and our parents were like great let's put our kids through more torture so it sucked anywho I'm getting off topic I graduated that was all that mattered all of my students so all of those conditions dragged this school called Adma International School open and they had computers and everybody was like ha, 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 and they went off to Adma International School and that was the end of it and uh, we lost so many students that that year that Adma opened and Adma was a terrible school had the worst we had kids in our school that would get a 50 out of 100 go to Adma they're coming out with 95 100 out of 100 and it's not cuz it's a nurturing environment they were just it was the worst school ever and the one thing about my school is despite everything bad I say about it, it was an incredible school and I wish I could emulate the same experience. Um, and maybe I'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. But I, I, so my class, 11 students, one by one said, nope, I'm not gonna do the speech. Nope, I'm not, until it got to me. So I, I get to do the speech. And by this time, I'm a public speaker in the sense that, um, oh, let me tell you this. I had been kicked out of school so many times. And every time you do, you get a black list it's called a blacklist and they, they put a dot on your record and you get like three blacklists you can't go to a university your chances getting uh, accepted to university plummet and i got um blacklisted uh 27 times so for being kicked out of class and for doing other stuff and um in my second to last year i was on the basketball team i was always a funny kid we had something called a Kermis, which is like a carnival. And it's like this three-day festival that the school does where there's, you know, they bring clowns and food 
and then there's a basketball championship and all the schools come and play and you know somebody wins so they have a speaker system rigged across the entire school grounds and it's used to make announcements i took the microphone and i started doing commentating for the basketball games so i would commentate like we have teams i don't know the names of the players so i'd give them their own names and i and i did it like you were watching an nba game like, you know, I'd, I'd call one guy like uh, Scotty Pippen and Michael Jordan, some, based on how they're playing, whatever. And I'd be like, Jordan for three, he scores. And it was so hyped that um, we never used to have anyone at the Kermis. By the third day, the place was packed and it cost $5 or $3 to get in. And people were spending money. And there were like a thousand people in the bleachers laughing their asses off, cheering because I'd be commentating. I'd be cracking jokes. I'd bring in special guests like uh, Britney Spears, the Pope. And I'd, <laughs> I'd do the voices and interview everyone. And it was so funny that everybody was really coming for the commentating and watching basketball and eating, you know, popcorn and treats and having a great time. Um, and then on the last day I was playing, I was in the team playing in the basketball team. I took the wireless microphone with me. And as I was playing basketball, I was commentating. Nimmer's got the ball. What an incredible move from he gives the pass from the thing. So it was just it was we were winning because the other team was laughing so hard. It was really something. It was so much fun um, to do all of that. I And somebody reminded me the other day in a show, I think it was in Jacksonville, that they're like, I was with you in school. And I remember when you would shoot the ball, you would leave your hand in the air exactly how you shot it so that others could learn and I, I totally forgot that's something I used to shoot a ball score it and I'd be like observe observe and I just keep running with my hand in the exact position before I get it again <laughs> shit was fun man uh dude I miss those days not the school the days um anyways so on the last day my commentating had brought in so many people and so much revenue to the school that the headmaster who was a brutal enemy with me for many years, but then him and I became the best of friends. Um, the headmaster would be the equivalent of, I believe, the superintendent in the American school system. His name was Halim. Uh, what an incredible, he's such a beautiful man. And uh, he came up to me and he said, Nimmer, your commentating and your attitude and what you did um, made us so much money and made this the most successful Kermis we've ever had that were wiping your entire record clean. And they wiped off all my blacklists. So while I do say bad things about the school and stuff, it was really these experiences that made me the man who I am today. And they had a lot of things that they would do that was fair. I deserved the blacklists. And I deserved to be also unblacklisted. And, and they were always fair with that. It was always about tempering that. But there were you know good people and bad people in every school. There's a great teacher and a shitty teacher. And principal was a, was, a, was, a, was a complete asshole and the headmaster. The principal would sit in air conditioning. His wife was his secretary. And she would sit outside his office without air conditioning. So let me just put it for you that way in terms of what kind of man this dude was. So anyways, I get to do the speech. And when everybody hears that Nimmer's doing the speech, all the parents want to come because they're like, this is going to be hilarious. And obviously, I'm going to do something funny. I write this speech with a couple of jokes, nothing crazy, and also a very nice speech. I'm forced to hand it in to be reviewed. The principal takes the thing, comes back, and he says, Nimmer, this speech, we're not going to let you say it. This is the speech you're going to do. And he hands me a speech that he's written. Basically, the speech is um, there's, um, you know, uh, uh, saints, and then you have, you know, prophets. There's Muhammad, there's Jesus, there's 
Jesus, son of God or the prophet, depending on what you believe, whatever it is, but you know, that level. And then there's God. And if you believe it, Jesus also God. whatever there's, you know, the, there's God, there's saints, there's God. Um, there's mystical figures, perhaps greater than God. And then there's Munsif National School. <laughs> the speech was literally like, if it wasn't for Munsif, I would not have known how to walk. And had it not been for Munsif, how hitherto would I have learned how to speak? And for not for Munsif, how would have I learned to clean my toes? And if it were not for Munsif, it was just like, it was bizarre. And to put it in perspective, Munsif National School, when, when recess would come and we'd go to get the food, it was the Hunger Games. We would go to get food from the cafeteria. And this is how it is in a lot of schools in Lebanon. They would have enough food for eight students and there's a thousand. And you get to the freaking uh, cafeteria and it is legit the Hunger Games in the literal um, sense of the word. You will, you run into the cafeteria and you're elbowing people, punching, there's, and you're like, you can't move. You push and shove your way like as soon as the bell rings, people explode, for lack of a better word from the Middle East, explode out of their classes to the cafeteria. We run in, we're jam-packed, and you're on top, and you're screaming. You got your cash in your hand, and you're shoving it all to get a croissant or a manushi that's supposed to have cheese in it, but it's like it has the, the eau de cheese. You can barely taste any cheese. The, the croissant chocolate, there's no chocolate. Also, you can get something just to put in your stomach to sustain yourself. Overpriced, and they never got enough, even though it's like you have the same number of students every fucking day, so just get the, No, never enough food, and we would just battle each other, dude. It was so bad that when my mom would make me sandwiches, I could sell my sandwiches for $3 a piece. This is the 90s. I want you to understand, I'm selling sandwiches made by my mom for $3. I turned it into a business, but that's a different story for a different day. So this school is far from the angelic picture that it was painting in the speech. So I said, sure, I'll read it. And of course, I wrote something else. And I got up that day and I read my speech. And I, you know, there's a, when, when I go to Lebanon next, I'm going to get all the, the cassette tapes and the home videos that I can. I'm gonna, when I come back to America, I'm going to go to a place and get them digitized, digitized. And hopefully I can find the AUB, uh, the Munsif uh, speech. Cause I, I can tell you what it was in its essence. I stood up and I said, you know, when I first, when I first, <laughs> oh, when I first started school, when I first came to Munsif, I hated school. I was a young child, and I thought school was the worst place on earth. I thought that it was pointless. I thought that it was um, uh, a complete uh, drain on resources. I thought it was a complete waste of time, and I thought I was, uh, it was completely stupid. It's only now, uh, having come to the end of my journey here at Munsif, that I realize how smart I was as a kid and huge like laughter from everyone. Everyone's cracking up principal sitting right on the chair, right next to me to the podium in the back. I can feel him fuming, but everybody's laughing, including his wife. I mean, talk about an alpha move right there and everybody else, right? The headmaster and they're cracking up. And I go, Munsif reminds me of a saying, and I took glasses out of my, my, uh, I don't wear glasses. I just had them and I put them on. And I read this saying that was the most complex saying ever. I can't even remember it. Then there was another punchline, another punchline. And my speech came after the Arabic teacher went into some fucking diatribe of a poem that went on for like 
45 minutes of Arabic poetry, which is the heaviest, unless you're a good poet, which this guy wasn't, heaviest Arabic, and just like, like the most, it's, and you, for those of you who don't understand Arabic, it's as heavy as that sounded. For 45 minutes, parents were going to kill themselves. They were falling asleep. It was just horrible. So I come up after this and people are just, they're like, this kid is, the, yes, they're clapping, they're laughing. I finish my speech, standing ovation. The crowd is going wild. I'm the hero. I turn around. The principal stands up. He grabs my hand, pulls me in, and he starts saying in my ear, I'm going to slap you so hard that I'm going to take out all your teeth, which in Arabic is, and he was serious. He was red. He was furious. His wife pushes him out of the way and hugs me and says, and she grabs my cheeks and she gives me a huge kiss. And she says, that was the best speech we ever had. And all the other teachers are congratulating me. But as I'm hugging his wife, I look at the principal and I smile with eye contact and I wave. Uh, that was gold anywho let me you know what maybe I'll keep telling you a bit about my school years since they had a big influence on where stand-up comedy uh, how it shaped itself in the Middle East so I will other things I remember from my school years some of the pranks we pulled that were just incredible Um, my friend George was in a class higher than me because George was born uh, normal like everybody else but his parents wanted to put him in school early for some bizarre reason I don't know the exact year but I think they put him in school at like two years old in kindergarten so he was my age he went to university when he was like 15 like it was absurd so and he wasn't like a pro- he's one of the most ingenious people I know but it wasn't like they put him in school because he's a prodigy it's just they put him in school early because they just said like give him a head start it was a horrible parenting decision <laughs> but George was one of the funniest people I knew. And I remember George once they, um, <laughs> so in Lebanon, you'll have uh, trucks that will drive in the streets to sell uh, goods uh, like vegetables. And they have microphones and they say on the microphone, uh, you know, we got potatoes, we got cucumbers, we got uh, uh, onions, we got, but it's in Arabic. So it'll be like, yalla batata, yalla khyar, yalla, <laughs> whatever. Yalla means come on. And batata is potatoes. And yalla banadura is tomatoes. Batikh is watermelon. Um, so it's a, it, and it sounds, it's kind of like, yalla batata, yalla khyar, yalla banadura, yalla batata, yalla khyar, yalla banadura, yalla, yalla batata, yalla. And it's like, it's annoying, but they pass through and they go. So my friend George and his class, they got a tape recorder. And, uh, they got the cassette tape. They switched it to LP mode. If you guys remember what it is, long play to get more recording out of it. So I think you believe each side becomes 60 minutes or something. And they recorded two sides. They jumped on one of these trucks and joined the dude and recorded two sides of Yalla Matata, Yalla Khyar, Yalla Matata, Yalla Khyar, Yalla Matata, Matata Ba'alf, Yalla. And every time they had Arabic class, they would put <laughs> the recorder outside the window and press play for the whole hour and this teacher was losing his mind just like (laughs) he was just like every time the class would start this guy would come and he just he'd open the window he got so bad he'd start screaming 
And then just it was not that he ended up running into the streets looking for um this guy like a madman. And uh he took like a week off because he was having a mental breakdown. <laughs> so let's just give you an example. It was in its essence harmless, but just the genius of the pranks were just so good. Um other weird things we do. I had a, a friend, Ziad, in my class. His dad, like, never came to school for parent-teacher meetings. He's just like, I'm paying tuition. Why? This is this is what I'm paying you for. I give you tuition. You cut. I send my kid. He graduates. You take care of that. This is this is. Why am I paying you? Why do I have to keep following up? You do you do it. And if he's not paying attention in class, it's not my problem. It's your problem. Solve it. <laughs> so once Ziad gets kicked out of class, he goes to the headmaster, a different headmaster at the time. It was Bassam, and Bassam tells him, "Gather your stuff." and leave the school. In other words, call your parents to come get you to leave the school. So Ziad gathers his stuff and he just walks out of school. Bassam comes in and uh, about an hour later and he's like, where is Ziad? His dad didn't come. And we're like, Ziad left. And he's like, what do you mean he left? I'm like, he left, you told him to go. And this guy just runs, turns on his car, starts looking for Ziad. We had some characters in our class. We had a kid called Joe Buede who once got in an argument with the English teacher because the English teacher, he threw a table at him and they started throwing fists and everything. Just, there was a lot of insanity in my school. And I think the biggest teaching experience I got from my school was the fact that um, the teachers were so brutally honest with us because we were so, we had become, you know, classes of 10 and eight and 11 that it became like private tutoring. And these teachers weren't getting paid. Um, And that's something that happens a lot in the Middle East. You work and they don't pay you. And then they say, oh, we couldn't pay you this month and then next month, and then you can't leave because if you leave, you know you're not gonna get paid, so you stay, and they still don't pay you, and it accrues, and then you, it becomes very negative. And these teachers, we became buddies with them. We became friends, and we were genuinely curious. We would always veer off topic, asking them questions about different subjects, but they would share with us a lot of their problems that they're, you know, they don't have money, and they don't have, uh, they don't know how they're gonna pay their bills, and they'd come in, they'd be stressed out, and we'd try to make them laugh, and it became a very realistic life education. Like we really became part of the real world and they opened our eyes to something that no school will teach you, taxes, uh, the difficulty of making ends meet. Uh, One of our teachers didn't have money and he was in love with this girl and it was going so well and he was worried that now that he couldn't afford to kind of take her out and stuff like that, that she might lose interest. And we had the girls in our class time, like, you're a great guy. That's don't worry about that. Like she'll understand and what, and then it ended up, it ended up hurting his chances. And, you know, we were exposed to that like 13, 14 years old. So it was, it, the school was incredible by accident because of a lot of things that happened. And, um, I'm trying, I'm remembering other stuff, uh, as we're going our different kind of crazy stuff that we used to do. The way we used to cheat was really funny in class. See, it pushed our creativity just in, in not by not on purpose. It wasn't like the school wanted us to be creative and they had these. Cor- it was because they were so weird with the ways they would test us and stuff that we would we came up with creative ways to cheat. I remember in in class to cheat, we used to raise our hand and be like, "Sir or Miss" to the teacher, "Can you give me the answer to number six in the middle of the test?" And he'd be like, "Shut up! Like, don't, don't even." And that was basically us saying to everybody, does anybody know what the answer to number six is? And they, it would be usually in this, when we do this, it'd be a multiple choice question. And then somebody else would raise their hand like, C. <laughs> We'd all laugh like, <laughs> and it was C. So it was stuff like that that would infuriate our teachers. And then we used to have bets um, who would finish the fastest. 
uh, in geography and history class because I got kicked out of history and geography class with uh, Joe Bueri, the aforementioned kid. Sorry, no, with Rabia, Rabia Haddad, my best friend. And we started going and play, and that meant automatic deduction of 20 points from our grade cumulative in history and geography. So we're like, okay, whatever. And we start playing basketball. We were having the time of our lives because we had like, you know, history and geography every day of the week. So we were getting an hour to two hours every day to just go outside, play basketball. It was outstanding. We were having the time of our lives. And then the, and the teacher was like, let's see how well you do in the exam. And then the exam came and we aced the exam. We got a hundred out of the exams. Um, because it was all memorization. So it was like, whatever. We took the notes, we memorized them, and we freaking got 100, which means we got an 80. And we were like, you know what? We're very happy getting an 80. We're considering the 20% that you're taking out uh, our payment for us to be able to play basketball and have a good time and run around and stuff. And, and if there was the two final hours of the school, we could just go out to the, to the basketball club or something next to the school and have a great time. Then they were like, okay, you got to get back into class because it was reflecting so bad that we weren't even in class and we were acing the exams. So they, they told us, you got to get back into class. And we're like, no, 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 we're too, we, you can't trust us. Look, at we keep making jokes. They ended up forcing us back into class. I, I, want, I hope you're getting a feel of what my school years were in grade school. Uh, um, what else can I tell you guys about that we did that was really crazy? Man, there were so many, so many amazing stories um, and so many great friendships. You know, friend, friendships in school, you never get friendships like that uh, in life. Everybody wants something. You know, if, if you're ever friends with somebody, it's because they, you know, I mean, not necessarily, but chances are it started because of something. Even if, if you go to a bar and you see a girl, uh, you're talking to her not because you want to be her friend, but because you want to sleep with her uh, if you're a guy or a lesbian. And if, you know, vice versa, if a girl, there's always an alternative motive. It's just that because there, there isn't that innocence that you have as a kid, which is like, I want to hang out with this person because I have fun, like literally. Do you know what I'm saying? And those childhood friends, you never get those again. You might meet people through work and then you become the best of friends and you're inseparable for life. But just the nucleus of that relationship isn't as pure as childhood friendships. I value the friendships I have with my friends from childhood more than anything. Not to say I have... I haven't had great friends otherwise, but I'm just saying there's something really special about that. So when I look back at those years in school, I, I'm i very happy that I get to remember so many fond memories, although I can tell you there were sleepless nights almost every night, a lot of crying, a lot of hatred. I was very miserable um, in my school, but I, I prefer to share the fun stories instead of why I was miserable. But um, I remember when I did finish school, I was so happy that I gathered all of my books and in Lebanon, we have a habit of selling our books. We sell them secondhand. And our parents will do something called tijlid, where they bijaldo, or they basically get this stick-on paper. And man, God bless uh, Lebanese parents who do this. Like, it's just, it's insane how involved they are with their kids. They're a lot like Jew. So a lot of Jewish people that I meet uh, in America, they tell me stories about their parents. And basically, they're just the same as Arabs. Um, they're, they're just in every detail. But in, in Lebanon, what they do, you get new textbooks and they'd be hardcover. And to protect their resale value, because you're a kid and you're a piece of shit and you're probably going to scribble in it, but to protect the resale value, and if they did, your parents would beat your ass, they would get this um, sticky, sticky material. It's see-through and it basically covers the cover of your book and it sticks right on it and it folds it and you can't make a mistake because as soon as it's on, it's not coming off. If you want to take that off, it's going to rip the book apart. They would stick it in 
and the parents would have these techniques to not get air bubbles in it so that it would stick automatically. It was like cellophane wrap, but thick and, and see-through, but really protective. And they'd do your whole book with it. And uh, <clears throat> we'd take them to class. And then we'd graduate and we'd sell the books or pass them down to a sibling and then eventually sell them. Because usually you'd have the same books for a generation or two. And when I graduated, I was so happy that it was over. That I gathered all my books and I started a fire. Uh, in Lebanon, we all know how to create fires and stuff because we barbecue from very young ages. Our parents will teach us. Started a big fire and I put all the books in the fire and I lit them on fire and I cried the most joyful, happy tears. In my, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it right now. Like it's <laughs> so much happiness, unbridled joy just crying, tears falling down my face and laughing the entire time, just like laughing hysterically and crying at the same time and watching them burn, knowing I never had to go back again. Never. It was done. I survived. And uh, my parents thought I had a psychotic break. They actually thought it was a nervous break. I, I pretty much looked like I just had a complete mental and nervous breakdown. But um, it was done. It was over. I was free. Free at last. And that was, oh my God, what an unbelievable day. And I, I haven't even gone back to that school since. I don't know if I should. I'd like to go back. Maybe one day I'll go and, and put a vlog out so you can see. It wasn't the school. I just, I hated institutions. I'm, it's, I'm incapable of being put into a system that dictates what I have to do and at what times. I just, it, I cannot do it. It goes against my soul. And it's not out of a thing like, I just, I can't, okay? I, like, I literally can't. Like, I did it. I'm not being melodramatic about it. I just, I despise people who judge me and feel that they have the authority to judge me. And I always felt that was what school was. Like, this exam is stupid, that's not the information you should be teaching me, nor is it the information that you should be testing me on. This is not critical thinking, this is memorization. I was never a kid who, who hated knowledge. I would fail classes, but I would, I would be reading other chapters. It's just I had a very, uh, I was, always knew what I needed to get, the information I needed to get to where I wanted to in my life, and I knew that this was not it. So I didn't want to cl cloud my mind with stuff to satisfy the ego or the psyche of some weird school administrator or, or some um, uh, uh, government agency that set a curriculum in, in the most bizarre way just so that they could settle some score between one person and another because a bribe wasn't paid. Um, I remember I was so infuriated with what we were learning in school that I wrote out an alternative. I wrote out a huge document that um, had suggested books and a complete revamp of our, uh, of, our, of our curriculum. It was about 20 something pages. I should look for these. When I go to Lebanon, I'm gonna try to find them, see if I have them in my archive somewhere. And I had every student in my class sign it. But before I did that, I sat and I had a meeting with all of them and I explained to them in depth the entire uh, uh, contents of the document. And I told them that they needed to know what they were signing. And we went backwards and forwards and they asked me questions and I explained everything to them and we debated. We were, all the students in the class were brilliant. 
Um, and uh, whether all of them, all of them just had great questions. And I had the books with me. And I was like, we should be reading this. We should be reading, you know, uh, Palace Walk, which I mentioned in my last episode because it talks about the dangers of extre- there's a da- you can see extremism in this. We should be exploring this. And this guy won the Nobel Prize for literature, and he he's Egyptian. These are our people. Like we should be reading and celebrating this, um, or we should be reading this book or that book. And I, I I can't remember exactly which ones I suggested. I do remember Palace Walk was one of them. And um, my principal, that same bastard, came into class when I submitted this. And the owner of the school, Rumsey, was an incredible man. He saw it and he was like, I love that this kid took the initiative and that his class is behind this. They're asking to learn more. Let's teach them more. And my principal was furious that this went over his head. So he came to class and he stood everyone up and he said, one by one, I'm going to bring you up here and I'm going to ask you questions about this document because none of you have read it. You're too stupid to read through this document. I'm going to ask you questions about it. And every single person who can't answer my question gets kicked out of school thinking that was going to scare everyone. And I just sat there with a smile on my face because I saw it coming. And he called every student up and asked them like these bizarre questions and grilled them and every student nailed every question. And he walked out furious. These are the experiences that I had in school. I was there for many years. I was there from the fourth grade till the 12th grade. So fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th. Um, and man, school was just like, it was a, a crazy place, dude. Uh, that school, there would be like humidity. I had allergies to humidity. And it was, I get asthma, like reactions to humidity and stuff. And it was so humid. There were no heaters. And they'd be like, there's no heaters because you shouldn't get used to heat. You should always, it's not that cold. And it's just because they were too cheap to, to install it. And that's why everybody was leaving. But I had some great memories there, man. And it's interesting, but that's, isn't that kind of like what life is? Like no matter how you can choose to, I could have chosen now to sit and tell you about nothing but horrible things. But instead, instead of me even saying, you know, like the principal came in and he was looking at the document and he made us all stand up and that man infuriates me and I hate him and whatever. To me, I still remember how good it felt that we won that little victory. I've always been a very positive person. So I think in life, we're all subjected to, especially when we're left out of the, let out of the cocoon, which if you're in the Middle East, there is never a cocoon. There's no safe space. Nobody's taking care of you. But if you're in America, once you hit the real world for, for some people, not saying all, um, they get hit with reality and it's, it slaps hard, man. That bitch slaps hard. And um, I think if you're a positive person, that's a very good thing to have because you immediately realize that every negative experience, every time you're on stage and people don't laugh, any time of these things, you're learning and you're growing. And I always recognize that. So I was, I was always grateful for uh, any situation that was negative that I was in. And I was even, and it made me determined to always win and overcome. And uh, this is this is a lot of what ended up going into stand-up comedy, which which I'm, you know, I know these sound like I'm not talking about stand-up, but I think to understand how stand-up comedy began in the Middle East, you need to understand how I began as a human being or who I am. Um, because that entire scene was single-handedly molded by my drive to make it a reality and by everybody telling me that it couldn't happen or trying to tell me how it's supposed to happen. And it was my rejection of institutions that made me do it all independently. I couldn't, I didn't want to work with anyone. Uh, I didn't want to work with anyone because there was so much corruption. I didn't want to work with anyone uh, because I didn't want to owe anyone anything. I wanted people to come to my shows because I was funny, not because they were allied to some movement that was allied, I was allied to and I had to kiss their 
speaker leader's ass or whatever. I think a lot of that was forged in my school years. I would recognize positive authority and negative authority, you know, and uh, I would recognize that there was a time. And one thing that I recognize is people were always say there's, there's a time to be funny and a time to be serious. And I never saw a time that you shouldn't be funny in. Even when you're serious, you should be funny. Uh, and I think even in the most violent situations, like somebody's coming at you. If you look at comic book heroes like Marvel and stuff, Spider-Man, all that stuff, when they when they hit back, it's with jokes. Like they're hitting the guy and they're cracking jokes at the same time. That's strength of spirit. And I think nothing is is more badass than even if you've lost a loved one, even if it's the worst thing, you know, even if your loved one died of natural causes or a pure accident, to joke in that situation. I've been to many funerals in Lebanon and people tell jokes at the funerals. It's a nervous laughter. It starts and then everybody becomes kind of like a celebration, a celebration of the defiance you have to the most powerful thing in the planet, death. Uh, you refuse to accept that it has any control over you. So a lot of people be like, there's a time for this, time for that. I'm like, no, there's a time for only one thing in this world and that's for you to be you and for you to be dominant and to assert yourself. Because even if you're wrong and you do it, you also have to be self-critical to a degree that you can immediately recognize that and learn. How are you going to learn if you don't put yourself out there? And how are you going to put your how are you going to put yourself out there if you're always obeying the command of something? So that's why I've never been good in institutions. And I think that I recognized immediately that a lot of the problems in the Middle East were because we were divided into institutions, either institutions of racism, institutions of religion, but the religion behind it was very tribal and racist and bigoted. You weren't uh, proud to be Christian because as a Christian, you believed that you should give all your things to people and you were proud of the way of life, that you would shed all of your belongings and you had given up value on material uh, things so that you could help out the poor. No, you were proud to be Christian because fuck the Muslims and the Jews. And uh, the same thing for I was proud. I'm proud to be Muslim because fuck those Christians or proud to be Jewish because fuck all the Arabs or fuck this or fuck th that attitude, that tribal mentality goes so much against all of these religions texts, by the way. Um, that's the hypocrisy. But I noticed that. And then every time you turn on a TV show, anytime you'd want to watch anything in Lebanon, it was politically charged, religiously charged, a lot like America today. America today is the Middle East in the 90s, dude. It's Beirut in the 90s. America today is disgusting. There's politics and religion everywhere. And it's not a celebration of the political process. It's not a humble way of doing things or whatever. It's a disgusting, unfathomable way where kids are being raised with agendas now. It's, it feels like I'm back in Beirut. It's, it's absurd. And the Americans are going to learn some lessons that we had to learn that are, that are very bad. When I say we, I'm an American. When I say we, I mean my Lebanese side. We learned the hard way. And I was recognizing those things as I was growing up because I could tell um, that every time you turn on the TV, there's politics. Every time you go to a nightclub, it politics. This singer is with that political party. That's why people are in this club tonight. This club tonight has this political person in it, so everybody's there. This venue does events for this church. That church refuses to go to that venue. They go to that venue. This mosque does this here. That mosque doesn't associate with this mosque. The Sunnis and the Shiites, they have their own places that they go. Everywhere you went, dude, everywhere you went, all it was was about divisiveness. And people took pride in it. Like, that was amazing. 
Like, we're the best and we're here, let's party. They were the most stupid, absolutely disgusting behavior I'd ever seen from people. And I was a kid and I could notice it. I remember when I was still in high school, I told my dad I wanted to start um, a website called RRR, Refuse, Resist, Rebel. And it was because Refuse, Resist was one of my favorite songs from an album from Sepultura called Chaos AD. If you haven't heard of it, go and check it out. It's, it's fucking fantastic. And I wanted to be Refuse, Resist, Rebel. And I wanted to start a movement where people, it was a, it was a screw you to all political parties and to be truly independent and all religious affiliation, to be truly independent. I had this master plan and uh, my dad said I was a complete fool. He said nobody would follow and that the Middle East is divided. And that's how it is. Just learn to navigate it. Don't try to change it. Um, and although he believes that it can be changed and he believes in my ability to change it now publicly, at the time, he was like, I'm never going to encourage you to because I'd be literally encouraging you to step into the line of fire. Because one thing that I've learned in my years of trying to be an independent voice, nobody likes that in power. But it happens that the majority does. That's why I'm the biggest selling artist in the Middle East when it comes to comedy. Uh, one of the biggest selling artists, period, because I'm just independent. Everybody comes to see Nimmer as opposed to this political party or that. And there's very few artists that do that. And I recognized that very early on. And I was disgusted by it. And I hated it. My show Love Isn't the Answer, I talk about how much I hated stuff like that. Uh, about my friendship with a kid called Hamoudi. Uh, somebody asked me to actually elaborate on this and we're, we're going along with this. So I'm going to jump back and, and go ahead. I don't have their name. I'm going to find the comment and throw a thank you in the comment section for the person who asked me to tell the Hamoudi story. But um, I'm going to abbreviate it now because it's in Love Isn't the Answer and I'm still doing that show in uh, upcoming shows. By the way, London, uh, Paris, Amsterdam, Berlin, tickets at nimmercomedy.com. Um, it's coming up in the next two weeks those show but I, I went to school and I was friends with a kid called Hamoudi who was Muslim I was Christian and I was getting bullied and when I asked my dad why am I getting bullied because I was new in Lebanon I didn't understand that there was a civil war that had divided people and Christians and Muslims and Jews and everybody had slaughtered everyone uh, and they did it for no reason whatsoever besides that it was the tribal thing to do and it was their proxy and when I found all of this out I didn't know that at the time. When I told my dad, he, he broke it down to me and he told me it's because you're a Christian and Muslim and he told me everything about it. And I hated it. I was disgusted by it. I hated the fact that there were the teachers were acting this way when they were the elders. And it's always like, listen to your elders. They know the answers. And I'm finding out they're the worst people on the planet. I was full with hatred. I've always had hatred in my heart. And it's been an amazing, beautiful, positive thing for me to keep me going. And in Love Isn't the Answer, I really go into detail in that. So I won't do that here. But the reason that I'm saying this is because I remembered something. I want to connect this. And I, I never really connected it. After I finished school, I went to the American University of Beirut. And I found many things I didn't like there. And in the next episode, I'm going to be talking about how I started stepping into the public space as a stand-up comic, not as somebody who was just addressing people in a speech somewhere or on the playground. How I started doing stand-up, because it's the first stand-up comedy show that ever took place in the Middle East, happened in 1999 at the Batesh Auditorium in AUB, and I'm going to tell that story. And then I'm also going to tell you about the, the finance club and how it was politically infiltrated, or they tried to politically infiltrate, about the time that a ex-Lebanese minister, or maybe even prime minister, came to give a talk and he was forced onto us because we were actually painted as a non-political club, which was a big deal. And 
Um, he was forced onto us to get our mandate signed by the assistant dean of the School of Business, who was a political son of a bitch. And he wouldn't refuse to sign it unless we did this event. And I said, the only way we're doing this event is if he doesn't talk politics. And he came and started talking politics and I shut the event down and he had some thugs with him and they started to scream on the campus grounds and we held our ground and we almost kicked everybody's ass. I'm gonna tell you that story and how it led to the P the finance club becoming the most successful club in the history of the AUB despite constant attempts by that associate dean who even threatened to have me kicked out of the university and I almost punched him across the face in a shouting match. And I'm gonna tell you that story. I'm gonna tell you how that club became a machine. And when we started with the club, we had a deficit. When we left the club, we left about $40,000 of revenue in the club. How different teachers had us handle their guests and we had services and cell phones and everything it was insane. I'm gonna tell you about the students involved in that because they're amazing stories. And I'm gonna tell you some more stuff to deal with. I'm gonna save it as a surprise, but this all links to when I talk about institutions and all of that, it all starts with the PR club, with the finance club. I was the head of PR, how it led into the career that I did comedy in and the political divisiveness. Um, and in future episodes, I'm going to keep this going. I think this is great stuff. If you don't like it, let me know in the comments below and I'll stop this podcast is for you. But if you do like it, I'd like to share that with you in the future episode. And then the episode after that, maybe we'll, we'll get into the chronologically when I actually started doing stand-up um, and I took it from a hobby following uh, a brutal war in Lebanon. I took it from a hobby to an actual thing and it started a movement. And then when I wanted to, to do my first big show, how I went to different universities and I told them that all the clubs, every club was politically affiliated and every club in the universities is politically affiliated and the, and the fucking politicians, those absolute scums and rejects and degenerates of this earth, those absolute useless, horrible, thug, criminal, murdering, mastermind bastards who are evil and it's so calculating and brilliant would watch the elections of the schools and declare victories. They would inject their politics into it to hopefully get more seats and see it as a reflection. The politicization of youth was seen as a reflection of success. That's how disgusting they were. Um, I went and said, I'm gonna do events on campus and we're gonna raise money for the Children's Cancer Center of Lebanon, St. Jude's. And if you don't know this, St. Jude's was started by Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas, one of the greatest stand-up comics that ever lived, Lebanese man who made it here in America many years ago. And I'll talk about that as well. An inspiration for me and everybody in this business. And um, I said, I'll do the event, but you have to, all the different clubs have to bring me. I won't come with one club. It has to be all the different clubs. Unite for this event. It's for charity. So do it. And you can't wear your logos because everybody had a color. The color orange was this thing. The color blue was that thing. I said, you all wear white. So everybody had to wear white. And every college campus agreed. And the NDU, the Notre Dame University in Lebanon, shut down the university for the day and told all their students to come watch the show because everyone was united. We had like 3,000 kids. I have footage of all of this and I will be putting it online. Once we get through the podcast, I'll start showing you the guys and stuff. I got it all archived. As soon as I get to Lebanon, I'm gonna bring back all of the tapes with me and start digitizing them. And uh, AUB was massive. I was welcomed like a hero there because I had achieved a modicum of success and they saw me as one of their own. And then um, uh, uh, all these universities, USG, the French university, they gave us the biggest theater and, and UZEC, Uni University of Kaslik, 
Um, they did an outdoor event for me. Like this university was so eager to embrace this new movement of no politics, no religion, one love that I had started, which we'll be talking about in future episodes, that it became a huge thing, except for the Lebanese American University, the only university where things went wrong. I'm gonna tell you all of these stories in the upcoming episodes and a bunch of stuff I'm sure I've forgotten. There's gonna be a lot of drama and a lot of entertainment. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. The last episode I tried to make, the first episode I did, I just did my podcast. Everybody loved it. The second episode, I was preoccupied with sticking to a format instead of having fun and trying to make it short. I failed on the short thing. And the third episode, I made it short. And a lot of you in the comments told me it was horrible that it was short. And I got a lot of backlash. I only got one or two people saying, no, no, shorter is better. The majority said, make it longer. I decided in this episode to just enjoy myself and have fun. And hopefully you guys will too. And to share some of my experiences with you all on this podcast. So I'm going to end it here today. And hopefully you enjoyed this episode. As always, please let me know in the comments below. To the person who asked me to elaborate on the Hamoudi story, I no, I didn't really elaborate on it. Let me let love isn't the answer run its course. And then I will. In due course, I'll come back to it. But shout out to you, and I will put your name down in the comments, and I apologize, my phone isn't next to me, and I don't want to have to look through it now uh, to find your comment, because I think it would be rude for the people watching, um, that I wasn't prepared. Thank you guys for watching. Uh, to people who are new to this podcast and who haven't heard about me, my name is Nimmer. I'd love it if you go to nimmercomedy.com. You can see all my work there. Um, for everybody who wants to see No Bombing in Beirut, my Showtime special, in March, I'm very excited to say I will be able to give you finally download links where you can buy it and download it for a very nominal price and it'll be yours to own. This is the best way I can get it out to you all. It's a Showtime special, but this is also very good distribution for international. Uh, as I continue to grow in fame with your support and with your love, the opportunities that I get to make my material and my comedy more accessible to you will only grow. This podcast is my way of giving back. My shows are my way of giving back. Um, and my goal, and you should know this, is that I become successful one day, successful enough that I can do shows for free. And I don't have to worry about money and I can get my money from other sources. That would be the happiest thing I could do. So until we get to that point together, I want you to know that I appreciate you guys more than you'll ever know because without you, I wouldn't even have any of these experiences to share and nobody to listen to them. So you're really everything that I live for and I dedicate myself to you each and every time and I appreciate you beyond measure. So thank you so much for listening to the very funny podcast. Hopefully you found it very funny and you found it very podcast. <laughs> Goodbye. See you guys soon. I'm off to pack my bag. We head out to Europe, London, Paris, Amsterdam, and Berlin. Oh, and, and uh, hit me up on Instagram and on Facebook and all that, but mainly Instagram because I can put my stories there and I'm going to be sharing stories. I'm doing some amazing press in Europe. I'm very excited. I'm going to be on Hard Talk on BBC, which is a show I grew up watching. So it's just unbelievable to me. And a bunch of BBC radio shows, TV shows, evening standard kind of newspaper stuff. And it's really something. I'm so honored and so excited. The show in London's almost sold out. Paris almost sold out. I'm just, I'm blessed beyond blessed. So I'm going to be vlogging from there. I'm going to be capturing footage. And when I get back to LA, I'll sit down and edit something really nice. Uh, and I'm going to be sharing stories from the road. So join me on the adventure. Nimmer Comedy on all platforms. And thank you very much. Goodbye, beautiful people. Bye-bye, everybody.